What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to episode 654 with my guest Moby. And uh, his partner, Lindsay, his podcasting partner, jumps in towards the, uh, the end of the interview uh, as well. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Anybody who's a new listener, welcome. This is a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads. It is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I am not a therapist. But I hope you find this, this, uh, this podcast to be comforting, illuminating, compelling, life-changing? Oh, that's a bit much. That is a bit much. I believe there are still, let's see, this is this episode is going to be released on July 28th. Um, so Wednesday, August 2nd, uh, I will be sharing my story at, uh, even though it's at a comedy club, it's not going to be a comedy performance per se. Yeah, there might be a little humor in there, but I'm going to be videotaping it and uh, maybe releasing the videotape on YouTube. But one of the things that I would really like to do um, is to begin doing uh, corporate speaking work and uh, would love it if you would come out. I'll put the link for tickets. It's going to be at Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank. Uh, Wednesday, August 2nd at 7.30 p.m. And I, as I said, it's a, it's a tiny room, uh, and I believe there might still be some, some tickets uh, available. If there aren't, please do not drag me to court. I do not, I do not need Gracie testifying against me. That would definitely drive a wedge between Gracie and I. Um, those of you that are Patreon donors at the... $20 and above levels. I'm going to be trying uh, this Sunday. Um, I guess that would be July 30th. Yes, July 30th at 4 o'clock Pacific time, 7 o'clock Eastern time. I'm going to send a Zoom link out and we're going to do a get together. I don't know if you would call it a support group meeting. We're, we're just going to um, share about what's going on in our lives. Maybe we'll figure out a format as we're doing it. I don't know how many people are going to uh, show up. The nice thing about Zoom is uh, we'll be able to accommodate them all, and it'll be for about an hour. So again, this Sunday, July 30th, uh, 4 o'clock Pacific, 7 o'clock Eastern, and I'll send that, um, that Zoom link shortly via Patreon to donors at the uh, 20th. $20 and above level. And speaking of uh, Patreon donors, thank 
thank you, those of you who have been signing up. I've been putting a call out uh, the last couple of weeks uh, because we're, we're uh, experiencing a pretty large budget shortfall. And right now we're at about 660 uh, Patreon donors, and to to meet our budget, we really need, and it is not an extravagant budget by by any means. It's pretty bare bones. Uh, we need to get to about fifteen hundred Patreon uh, monthly subscribers. All right, enough of that bullshit. It makes me uncomfortable. Oh, and the other thing for the um, meeting that we're going to do, the virtual Zoom meeting this Sunday, is uh, I would like to explore the possibility of recording the audio and possibly integrating that into the podcast because I know you guys are going to share some deep shit. And, uh, but it will be up to you, the person sharing in the meeting, if, if you are open to that, your share being used publicly. All right, is that enough? Is that enough for uh, me to get out of the way? This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself slow. And she asks, is there anyone who to you is unredeemable? That's such a great, that's such a great question. And by unredeemable, I mean, that that's kind of an open-ended word. Um, to me, there's kind of two ways that you could think of unredeemable as somebody who is um, unlovable or somebody who is unrehabilitatable. And by the way, unrehabilitatable, use that in Scrabble. Um, I don't think anybody is unworthy of love, but I think there's a lot of people who are unrehabilitatable, especially people um, who have personality disorders, uh, you know, i.e. antisocial personality disorder, psychopathy, stuff like that. Um, but I think they're, I think everybody is, is worthy of love. Does that sound corny? I don't give a shit. That's what I believe. This is from our new survey, the Religious Abuse Slash Trauma Survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself me, and she writes, Where do I begin? I was raised by a very religious single mother. The Bible was the Word of God. She, along with a handful of TV evangelists and small-town pastors, would spend hours preaching to me and my younger sister. I was homophobic before I knew I wasn't straight. I was taught racism and can't help but remember when my mother's good church friend told my sister and I, quote, we were blessed Hispanic girls to be raised by such a good white Christian woman, unquote. Even though she was my biological mother because my father was Hispanic, it was like we weren't her children. We were homeschooled to be protected from the evil secular world of public education we were forced to read the Bible and pray for hours at a time, and on many occasions, many occasions, we fasted, purposefully going without food as well. The longest fast I ever did was for seven days. I was allowed nothing but water and vitamins. Once I remember having the chance to sneak some food, but I was scared that God would see me and tell my mom. Though all this sounds bad, I still feel one of the worst things was that I was being taught that we were living in the end times. I grew up fully not expecting to live to see my 20s. So I never did the planning or dreaming of what my life could be. 
I didn't dream of becoming anything when I grew up because I knew, you know, quote unquote knew, that the rapture would happen by then. That and I spent most of my teenage years trying to, quote, pray the gay away, unquote. Turned out there was a name for it and I'm now less ashamed of being bisexual. But for so many years, I feared the eternal pit of fire that I was convinced I awaited. So yeah, I'm an atheist now. I'm uncomfortable in religious buildings, and with the exception of weddings and funerals, I steer clear. I will be healing from the long-term effects of religion for the rest of my life. Have your experiences affected how you view religion or organized religion? I view organized religion as a whole to be very dangerous, unnatural, and unnecessary. Thank you for sharing that. And wow, that is intense. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences Survey, and this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Alpha Gator. And uh, she was in the psych ward for a suicide attempt. And she writes, I still have my journal I kept during my stay, and I wanted to share it here. It's too long to post all of it, so I'll just share the first page. I talk about some of the people that were on my unit, and I've added commentary in parentheses to add to what I wrote. Today is day two of my stay in the psych unit. No one will give me my bra, and I want to go home so fucking badly. I hate it here. They say it's a healing place, but it just feels like a rotting place to me. They haven't done shit to heal me. I want to be in my own bed, in my own house with my cats. I want to see my family. I want to hold my nieces. I don't know how anyone can stand this place. I will try to focus on the positive, though, or at least the more neutral. My roommate is Michelle. She reminds me of Chief from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because she barely speaks. She only goes out of bed for a couple hours a day. There's Mike, an older crazy homeless guy. He spent yesterday morning with a towel wrapped around his head. I'm not sure how he could see. He talks out loud to no one in particular a lot. A couple patients here do that, including Zoe, who I'm pretty sure has schizophrenia. She's often talking to no no one, responding as if someone is insulting her. She also walked out of her room once completely naked. I'm assuming because she thought no one could see her. Also, Devin talks a lot of nonsense out loud. Sometimes the things they say are so off the wall that they make me laugh. Like last night, we were trying to have group, but Mike kept saying, fire water, hot, hot. Lola is an older woman in a wheelchair. She's the unit tattletale. She's always telling on someone to the nurses. She's very sassy, but I like her. Brad has been nice to me from the start. He's older and his face is all beat up. I don't know what happened to him, but I think he's a drunk. He was beaten up by police. He also told me he had several steel rods in his arms and legs due to being gored by a bull during a rodeo. When I couldn't stop crying yesterday morning, he gave me a Danielle Steele book to help distract me. It's called Undercover. It's not the type of book I would normally read, but I'm actually really liking it. Liz has been really nice. She told me she cried her first two days here, too. She said she's here for excessive cannabis use. I didn't know that was a thing, but she's been really nice, and I feel better knowing she's here. Catherine is her roommate, and she talks a lot. Very loud and obnoxious. Kadisha is really sweet, but super slow speaking and moving. She somehow got here all the way from Winsboro. Trisha is 34 and also tried to kill herself. 
She's really quiet, but has been nice. I feel a connection to her. There's another guy whose name I forgot that came in the same night as me, also for attempted suicide. He later said he didn't really try to kill himself. His wife just told the cops because she was pissed at him. I'm trying to hold it together, but I want to leave so bad. I don't see how staying here is helping. Thank you for that. That um, of all, I've I've read hundreds and hundreds of these surveys, and you painted a picture that um, is really uh, I don't know the words for it. Moving, really moving. So thank you for for taking the time to do that, and I hope you're in a better place now than you were when when you were in there. This is from the love survey filled out by Jabberbox, and they write, I love popcorn with an obscene amount of butter. I love when I meet a new dog that seems to like me more than other people I'm with. I love going into my 19-month-old twin's bedroom in the morning and seeing how happy they are to see me. That's got to be an amazing feeling. I love spending hours on the phone with my sister talking about everything and nothing. And I love driving into big-ass puddles and making a huge splash. I remember one time I was in college and uh, my dorm mates and I decided that we were going to take up karate. And so they give you the white gi. And we were walking from the dorm to the gym to take lessons and it had just rained a lot. And this car drove out of its way to soak us all by driving through this gigantic puddle. And I wasn't even mad. I was like, if I'd had a top hat on, I would have tipped my cap to them. It was, uh, I, I heartily endorsed it. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
And then finally, this is an awful moment filled out, and we've read this one before, but it's been years, I think, since we read this one, filled out by a woman who calls herself fossilized. She writes, a couple of months ago, my mom, who I've often had a fraught relationship with, fell and fractured her spine. No permanent damage, but healing is a long, painful process. I've been helping her, but something else started happening. We started smoking weed together. And the weirdest thing is, it's done wonders for our relationship. Earlier, my mom opened up to me about some of the horrific things her mother did to her, which is something that has always been obvious since my mom has always had severe PTSD. It was weirdly comforting hearing stories about the trauma and dysfunction that has been passed down through our family. It feels good to understand my mother a little better and makes me feel closer to understanding my own trauma. And it only happened because my mom is dealing me drugs in exchange for vacuuming her house my consciousness might be disintegrated. Heavy weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight. I couldn't even drive. The first movie that I remember watching with him. Post-traumatic stress. When I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and moral injury. I would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. Or with my Barbies. <laughs> The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm gonna have to kill myself We'll be right back after this (laughs) I am here with uh, Moby And his podcast partner, Lindsay, is... uh, is chilling in a chair right now with and, her dog Bagel, and she she will be joining us. And maybe Bagel, maybe Bagel's got something to share about sweet potato treats. It's uh, kind of a given that at least one or two times while we're talking, Bagel will jump up on the table and want to show us her her two favorite things right now are scrunchies. And I bought her these little tiny tennis balls because her mouth was too little for regular size tennis balls. And she (laughs) loves these little tennis balls. So there's a good chance, even though this is not necessarily a visual medium, that we will hear Bagel running around on the table wanting to show us her scrunchie. Like, for example, right now. Oh, my God. It's dangerous. Hi, Bagel. Thank you. Oh, thank you. for Look at her. Oh, my God. She's ready for her close-up. Yeah. So fantastic. Hi, Bagel. You're so happy. You're the happiest little person in the world. So where to begin? I watched Moby Duck uh, last last night and really enjoyed it, especially the stuff with death (laughs) and the sound that you came up with for death's voice. I wish I could take credit for that. So the director, editor, Rob... I don't even know where he came up with that, but he was he was putting it together and this because how, you know, I mean, obviously death has had a lot of cinematic cameos, you know, from like Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal to Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Um, And so, yeah, what would death sound like? And he just made this weird noise. Yeah. And I thought almost like almost like an angry explosion uh, distorted through eight bits, something or other. Yeah. So I just thought it was perfect. But again, like I love taking credit for other people's work. But in that particular case, I had nothing to do with the death skit was my idea. But the sound of death was 100 percent him. Because you think that the documentary has ended with this crescendo, (laughs) this ridiculous funny uh 
thing at the end. So kudos, kudos. Well, if you can't make mm-hmm. comedy out of death, what can you make comedy out of? What can you do? Yeah. What can you do? Uh, let's talk about uh, growing up. You, um, I wasn't aware of the, the childhood that, that you had. Um, talk about your mom and your dad. Obviously, your dad was only briefly... And you're, and yeah, your life. I don't actually have any conscious memory of my father. Uh, so I was born in 1965 in Harlem, and my parents were sort of like academic hipsters. My dad taught at Columbia. My mom went to Barnard or Columbia. I don't know if Columbia had female students back then, and they were intellectuals. They were academics. They were also like my dad was also a serious alcoholic um my mom had a lot of and i don't want to malign people who are dead and can't defend themselves but it's not maligning her she just had unresolved mental health issues Mm -hmm. and so the first two years of my life i spent living in a basement apartment in harlem with my mom and my dad And my parents smoked and drank and did drugs and screamed at each other. And the only stable presence in my life when I was for these first two years were animals. My dad had rescued some lab rats. So we had three domesticated rescued lab rats, a couple of dogs, a couple of cats, all sharing this tiny, essentially windowless basement apartment in Harlem. And that's when I learned... At a very, very early age, like humans are most likely not to be trusted and animals are expressions of divine grace and safety in this world. And consistent. Yeah. That, that, that I think is the thing that I find most soothing uh, about dogs in particular is you know what you're, you're going to get. Talk about when you, what, what happened with oh, your dad. So the story I was told is that um, my dad was drinking more and more and he and my mom were fighting constantly. And at some point in around 1967, maybe early 68, my mother told me that she wanted a divorce, told me, that was a nice little Freudian slip, um, told him that that (laughs) she wanted a divorce (laughs) and that she was going to take me away from him. And his response was to kill himself. Uh, so he died when I was around two and a half years old. He, he drove into a wall at 100 miles an hour. Yeah, which I guess I, I thought when I was growing up and I, had, I knew that my dad had been in a, a driving accident. And I just thought, oh, it was a car accident. He died in a car accident. But then later I was told, no, that's, you know, like when someone drives at 100 miles an hour into a bridge abutment it's not an accident so it's a very apparently very how old were you when you found that out i was like i had this what i think of as my my russian literature awakening (laughs) when i was maybe like i don't honestly like 30 something years old i found out all these things i found out that my father had killed himself uh i found out that my grandparents didn't trust my mom to raise me, so they tried to get take me away from my mom. And my mom's response was to move us to San Francisco, where my grandparents couldn't 
get access right. to her and me. And then I also found out that I have a half brother somewhere. So I found out all wow. this stuff in like one fell swoop and it kind of felt like the plot reveal of a Russian novel. <laughs> what did you, what do you remember thinking or feeling um, when, when this stuff was laid out? Did you feel betrayal? Did you feel numb? Were you angry? I thought it was really interesting. If I'm being completely honest, yeah. I, it, I, I think that my response to finding out that my father had killed himself, that I had a half-brother, that my grandparents had tried to take me away from my mom, I think my honest response was, wow, that's kind of cool. Like, it made my story seem so much more interesting. I've got the material for a new song. Yeah. And the the sad part, but I, my, it didn't change the fact that my father had died when I was two and a half years right. old. So growing up, that was always this question, you know, like, oh, well, what, what, who, who was he? What had he been like? What happened? And the strangest part of that is... And I think it's a just, and maybe this is really self-evident, but it's part and parcel of getting older is what seems old to you when you're growing up. And then as you get to a certain age, that same thing seems like the experience of a child. Meaning when I was eight years old, knowing that my father had died when he was 26, 26 seemed like, I was like, that's that's how old the president is. You know, like 26 seemed like a, a grown up. And then all of a sudden I was in my 30s and 40s realizing like, oh, 26 is a kid, yeah. you know? And that's really interesting when like quantitatively his death didn't change. My qualitative reaction to it right. changed quite a lot over time. When you kind of bottomed out on drugs and alcohol, was there any part of you that looked at your dad differently? I have to say, when I finally admitted to myself that I was an alcoholic and an addict, I did feel this almost slightly like resigned sense of like, oh, well, I guess there is truth to the the nature versus nurture because like everyone on my father's side was an alcoholic. Uh and it just made me feel like, okay, yep, here I am, another in a long line of New England, kind of depressed, slightly angry alcoholics. You know, like I had met my my dad's uncles after he died, and they were all New England, angry, depressed, intellectual alcoholics. Like, so going back to Herman Melville, going back to, you know, like my ancestors from the 18th century, 17th century, 16th century, like a lot of angry, depressed mm -hmm. New England alcoholics. And Melville is your middle name, uh, and you're distantly related to Herman Melville, which... That's what my parents told me. That's where my whole name comes from. So movie. my legal name is Richard Melville Hall. And when I was born, my parents thought that Richard Melville Hall was far too grand and grown up of a name for a little baby. So my dad said, hey, let's call Moby. And now as we sit here talking, I'm 57 years old, still known by my infant joke nickname, <laughs> which is a pretty, I mean, it's a, as far as infant joke nicknames, like it could have been Squirt. 
It could have been who knows what. So like Moby's <laughs> definitely better than most infant joke and nicknames. It's such a great rock star name too. Well, I guess when when people assume that I've chosen this name, you know, like Sting or Bono or whomever, Flea, uh, in my case, no, I've had it since I was 10 minutes old. And if you call me by my real name, I don't know who you're talking to. I'm sure there is, again, some therapeutic depth to that. But One of the things that you uh, cover in the documentary is that some of your happiest moments and memories were squatting in a factory at, what, 1920? Uh, in my... Early to mid-20s, for about two or three years, uh, I, I left home, and the first place I lived was a friend of mine was a youth minister at Christ Episcopal Church in Greenwich, Connecticut. And to put it in perspective, Christ Episcopal Church is the Bush family church. It's the church that uh, JFK Jr.'s wife belonged to and where she was buried. So it's the waspiest of waspy churches um, in Greenwich, Connecticut, as you know, probably like the wealthiest place on the planet. And I was DJing there at an all ages club and I became friends with the youth minister and he was he, part of his job. He had a house on an estate in backcountry Greenwich and he let me live there. And so for about six months, I lived in this like beautiful sylvan, I mean, like on a 10 acre estate in backcountry Greenwich, you know, like part of this estate with like tennis courts and swimming pools, etc. And I lived there rent free. And then he got kicked out for getting in a fight with the pastor. And I had to go find somewhere else to live. And the only thing I could find was an abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood. This was the late 80s. So crack was rampant. Sure. And so I moved into this abandoned factory in the middle of a crack neighborhood, while I lived, while I was squatting in the factory, two people were murdered in the fact, the abandoned factory. By, By me, yeah. And no, that's still on my resume. I've never murdered anyone as far as I know. Good for you. Uh, but the funny thing there is I was so much happier living in this abandoned factory. Despite the murders. Despite the murders. And I had no heat. I had no running water. I didn't have a bathroom. There was a bath. There was a a sort of abandoned bathroom that kind of functioned about four or 500 yards from my space where I was. And, but when I was, I was so much happier living in squalor. I mean, it was actual squalor. Were there people around you? It's not some, there were a few other people in this complex who were also squatting. Uh, but most of the factory was just abandoned. But I just the irony that I was happier living in an abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood where I had no running water and no bathroom as mm. opposed to a beautiful early 20th century pristinely maintained guest house on a 10-acre estate in Greenwich, Connecticut. Do you think any of it had to do that with you didn't feel like an imposter in the abandoned factory, whereas living in the other thing, it, it felt like this outside doesn't match my inside? Don't let me put words or thoughts into your... You know, it's it because I've, I've tried to figure this out. I mean, obviously, being both curious and sort of narcissistic, I've been trying to like understand myself and like why why am I predisposed towards certain things? And there were 
two things about the abandoned factory that almost on an archetypal level I loved. One, it had a giant wall of industrial windows facing south. So even though I was in this abandoned factory, it was so bright and sunny. And that really is one of like that made all the difference. In the I world. imagine on cold days, that was like. Yeah, it was essential. Yeah. Um, but the other is, and it, this is so weird. I, I, so much of what keeps me going in the world is being interested in things. And simply living in the abandoned factory was more interesting than living in the guest house in backcountry Greenwich on 10 acres. Just there was more to be interested by. Like the building was interesting. The neighborhood was interesting. Sure, it was dangerous and it was squalid and filthy, but it was fascinating. Do you also feel like you were uh, maybe for the first time tapping into uh, your creative uh process the the well of things that you wanted to say with your music because you did have electricity and you yeah. had your equipment there and you were creating what would then become your first demos yeah i i mean it's funny equipment wise studio wise my little studio and i have lived in so many different places and where it's nice to have my studio in an interesting place. It's nice to have it in a clean place or a quiet place or a safe place. But ultimately, me and my studio just, you know, we, we've we been in so many weird different places. The place doesn't matter that much to us. And I know I'm anthropomorphizing a bunch of equipment, but nonetheless... It makes sense. We've been in bedrooms. We've been in basements. We've been in abandoned factories. We've been in... $12 million quintuplexes overlooking Central Park. We've been in castles. We've been in closets. We've been all over. And like, put me in a room with some equipment and I'm pretty happy. Like, it almost doesn't matter where I am or what the space is. Kind of, it kind of reminds me of like our relationship with dogs. They they will adapt. They're in the back of a pickup truck. They're like, this is great. I don't care if we live here. They're you know, in a in a beautiful house, they just are are there and they're consistent and yeah, as long as they're with their person. Yeah, um, I mean that's like for example, when you look at pictures of like the Obamas and they had a dog named Bo in the White House, or the Bidens with uh, Major, I think that and the, and the other dog whose name I don't remember, and like these dogs, they don't know that they're in the White House. You know, they don't know that they're surrounded by bulletproof glass and secret service agents. All they know is that they're with their person. And if they were in a homeless shelter, they'd be just as happy. If they were on the street, they might be colder, but they'd be quite happy they're with yeah. their person. And I guess I've largely felt that way with whatever studio I happen to have. So talk about when your career took off and and i'm more interested in kind of your your inner life how you felt about yourself the world um what what was that like well from my perspective my career took off in the early 90s and so the first record i put out under my name was a song called mobility and 
It's this underground piece of electronic music and it came out and it sold a thousand copies. And I was thrilled. I couldn't believe that. I mean, a thousand people were listening to something I had done. I was like, that's it. I, I can retire. Like I'm the mm-hmm. biggest rock star in the world. I sold, sold a thousand copies of a record. And then the next single was called Go and ended up selling half a million copies and being a top 10 record all throughout Europe. And that was so surprising because I was perfectly happy being an underground musician selling a thousand copies of a record. So when Go became successful, it wasn't just about me. It wasn't just about the music I'd made. It was about the zeitgeist. You know, it was, I had made, I was part of the rave scene, you know, the early 90s and the rave scene was happening, but also the world was changing in the most interesting, optimistic ways. You know, Bill Clinton had become president. Tony Blair had become prime minister. Uh, The Soviet Union was ending and Russia was talking about joining the EC. China was enacting democratic reforms. People were talking about this thing called the internet as a way of bringing everyone closer together. And I was part of this very optimistic musical movement. So it didn't feel like I was having a siloed sense of experience. I was part of a trajectory. And for a couple of years, it just seemed like, like, oh, this is the new status quo, this optimism, this joy, this, you know, weird sense of everything was light and everything was filled with wonderful potential. And so that was an incredibly special period um, of obviously things have changed. <laughs> so, so when I talk about my response right. to early success, it's hard for, for me to separate it or differentiate it from the zeitgeist that I was a part of. I got, I got you. Was there any part of you that didn't feel worthy of the financial the attention, the... Yeah, because I had never expected it. You know, I came from a family of artists and writers and musicians, none of whom had any success. And when I was growing up, my friends who were artists, writers, musicians, they never had any success. And so I just assumed, oh, this is my lot in life. I'm going to make music and no one's ever going to listen to it. And I was really sanguine around that. Like I was very comfortable with the fact that I was going to be an obscure musician who made music that no one ever listened to because that's all I knew. And and then when I started getting attention, it was thrilling and baffling because I had simply never thought that was going to happen. What was baffling <clears throat> about it? What was baffling was simply my assumption that well, first of all, I was part of a genre that I'd never like. There are certain musical genres that, when they were formed, there were no one was successful. Electronic music being one of them. I mean, in the early '80s, I was playing in punk rock bands, and in those days, there was no such thing as successful punk rock musicians. You know, the biggest bands were Black Flag and the Bad Brains. They'd play to 100 people a night, 200 people a night if they were lucky. So. When I started making electronic music, I had come from this underground punk rock world and I was entering the underground electronic music world. And I just assumed, best case scenario, I would play music to 50 or 100 people a night. And then all of a sudden, 
I'm on TV shows and I'm playing raves in front of 10,000 people and getting paid relatively well and moving into an apartment where I had a bathroom and running water, you know, the height of luxury. So it was all very surprising, but I certainly didn't reject it, you know. Right. I loved the attention and I loved the the external validation. Was there any point where you felt like, oh, this this is not fulfilling the part of me that I had maybe imagined would feel fulfilled by success? You know, that didn't come until much later. Uh, so throughout the 90s, I had bits of success here, bits of failure here. I lost a record deal. I got another record deal. But by the end of the 90s, practically speaking, my career was on its last legs. Is this before or after the failed punk album? Right after the punk rock record, which is called Animal Rights. Right, um, right after that, uh, I mean, that tour had been very depressing. You know, some of the shows, like the f when we played in Paris on the punk rock Animal Rights tour, we played a venue that held 100 people, sold 40 tickets, and by the end of the show, I think there were 10 people in the audience. How is, how is that possible when you're playing on the album before to 10,000 people? Well, I wasn't playing to 10,000 people to see me. I was oh, playing okay. to at raves I see. where I was, I was one of 20 people on the bill. Gotcha. Uh, but yeah, so the Animal Rights Tour had been very depressing. Then I started bottoming out as an alcoholic. My mom died of cancer. Uh, I was going broke. I lost my record deal. Like it was just like a litany of share some of the record rev reviews too about your punk rock album. Some of the I don't comments know they were bad. That's that's I don't <laughs> I don't. The, what was the it was the Village Voice one or where they said this this signals the end of music? No, that was later. That was that oh, was okay. actually the New York Times. So years later, I made a record called Hotel, and the journalist for the New York Times hated it so much he said it represented the end of music. <laughs> <laughs> and that review sat on the homepage of the New York Times for a week, front and center, for everybody to read. So that was – we're still not there yet uh, in my downward spiral. Right. So end of the 90s, my career is bottoming out. I'm bottoming out. Everything is looking pretty dark. And then I put out what I thought was going to be my last record, which was the album Play, which went on to go sell like 10 million records. So I went from being – to put here's a way to quantitatively describe it. The first show of the tour for the album Play was the basement of a record store in uh, Union Square in New York, and 40 people came. The last show for that tour was, I believe, in Los Angeles, headlining a festival that I'd put together, and there were 20,000 people there. So Play became ridiculously successful. And, and, this, it, and it's a great album. Thanks. Uh, but this leads to your, like, the lack of fulfillment around right. external validation and mm -hmm. success. So Play was successful, and I wanted to keep it going. Then the next record, 18, was successful, but less so. And the record after that, Hotel, that's the one that when, like, the critics came knives out and where I was, you know, really maligned. And I was also then bottoming out again as an alcoholic and a drug addict and eventually got sober. 
hold that thought for one second because there's another question I want to ask you is about when you dropped acid and then you had panic attacks for yeah. six months, nine months. Uh, so in 1983, like everybody f- from Darien High School in Darien, Connecticut, I went off to college and I went to UConn because it was the only school I could afford. And I got to UConn and I was having a delightful college experience. I was studying philosophy. I had a serious girlfriend at Connecticut College named Jenny. And I thought we were going to get married and raise little waspy babies. And, and then I tried acid and it derailed everything. Uh, you know, it all of a sudden I, I couldn't focus. I was having panic attacks. I couldn't think straight. And so I had to drop out of college. Um, Jenny, my delightful girlfriend, broke up with me. And I was found myself 19 years old, unemployed, a college dropout, sleeping on my mom's couch. But without that low moment, I never would have become a professional musician. I never would have traveled the world. I never would have probably moved to New York City. I never would have moved to Los Angeles. I never would have had the experiences I've had. I would have gone on to teach community college in New England, which would have been fine, but it forced me to reevaluate adversity. You know, no one, what's that? Go ahead. Yeah, no one wants to experience, to state the obvious, no one wants to experience adversity. Adversity sucks. But I, for myself, and I assume for most people, when you look at adversity, adversity ends up being sometimes the impetus you need or the lesson that you need to learn even though it hurts. And so I I try to remember that, like if I'm experiencing adversity now, like the down the road lesson attached to adversity might not become apparent for a while. Yeah. And and I think sometimes the emotional and connective muscles that we're forced to develop to just survive then are there for us to utilize in, in other seemingly unconnected ways. But we can't imagine that when we're like, my life is over. What is the point? It's all downhill from there. And when you see someone you love going through that, the impetus is to say, but you're going to be stronger for this. And I don't know, what's your thought on saying that to somebody when they're going through it? Because my my kind of feeling is that's not the time to... Yeah. I mean, some people, I, I think it's, some people might benefit from hearing that. Other people might punch you in the face. And they're like, how dare you presumptuously tell me that you know what I'm going through? Bring your silver lining bullshit to my pity party. Uh, Sometimes people want comfort. Sometimes people want silence. Sometimes people want understanding or perspective. I mean, the one thing I will say that I've found that can sometimes be helpful both for me and for other people is reminding people of experiences they've had in the past that were similar. Like if someone's having a terrible breakup, saying like, okay, well, tell me about some other past breakups you've had. And once they start doing that, they're like, oh, wow. Yeah, like 10 years ago, I had a terrible breakup. I thought my life, I'd never recover. And now I never think of it. And so reminding people that they've got, not saying generically, you'll get through this or not saying, here's how I got through it. Reminding them like, you've already been through this and you've gotten through it and it sucks, but if you've gone through it a bunch of times in the past, yeah. there's a good chance you'll go through it again. And and I really love that you are um, bringing that the art of listening to it rather than telling them. 
Well, it doesn't come naturally. I mean, as a where'd you learn it? As an only child, megalomaniacal narcissist, like I want to tell people exactly what I'm thinking and what I think they should do. But enough, I've tried that enough times, and you realize it doesn't work. Like best case scenario, people ignore you. Worst case scenario, they get really mad at you. And so I've almost been forced to learn how to listen because it's definitely not my default. So uh, let's let's fast forward to um, well, there's. Two moments that I want you to share with a listener. The, the first one is the moment on the bus uh, where in the documentary you talk about it kind of uh, being a bottom for you when you woke up. Uh, well, there, there, are, there were a lot of tour bus low moments. I believe what you're describing, uh, it was in Manchester and I had... My career was not, this was around 2005, sometime in the mid-2000s, mid-early 2000s. And I had had a crazy night on the tour bus the night before, tons of drugs, tons of alcohol, tons of debauchery, and I woke up covered in poop. To this day, I don't know whose poop it is. And... The way I remember it is so I wake up cold, you know, Manchester, overcast, cold, covered in poop, so hungover from everything. And I stumble out of the bus covered in unknown origin poop, go into the lobby, grab my hotel key, go up to the the room and start throwing up and then get in the shower to clean myself off and realize it's the anniversary of my mom's death. And I was like, wow, this is where I am, huh? Like I'm a rock star covered in somebody's poop, throwing up in a random hotel room, remembering that this is the anniversary of my mom's death. Like that... And I think I might have even had the ability to say like, you know what? This is so gross and so terrible, but kind of fantastic at the same time. An awfulsome moment. Yeah. Uh, or I, I, I like to describe it as like the intermix of pride and shame. You know, like <laughs> deep, horrifying shame, but like also eh, a little bit of pride. Uh, talk about the moment being in the top floor the night before the MTV yeah, another, Music Awards. All, all these all these fantastic low moments. Um, so that was a paradoxical low moment because it was a high moment. You know, I was... Professionally. Professionally. Boy, oh boy, I was a rock star. Like I had, you know, we were flying around the world in private planes. I had an assistant whose only job was throwing parties for me. I'd sold tens of millions of records. Um, on tour, I had my own tour bus, you know, like the band and the crew, they had their buses and I had my own tour bus. Like it was just ridiculous, stupid, embarrassing excess. And I was performing at an MTV Awards in Barcelona and I knew I was going to be receiving some awards. So just like professionally, like in our culture, like how does it get better than this? Like you're a rock star and I was staying at the top of this fantastic hotel called the Arts Hotel. And at the very tippity top of the Arts, they have four apartments. And each apartment is like a three-bedroom apartment with 
30-foot walls of glass looking out over the Mediterranean, like as nice as anything you can imagine. A private elevator going up there, armed security guards outside the elevator. And while I was staying there, the other three apartments were P. Diddy, Madonna, and Bon Jovi. So this is rock stardom as it, at its most rock stardom. And I had a party and I got very drunk. Everyone left and I was by myself. And all of a sudden I was crippled with depression and just like this angry misery. And so I remember walking around this fantastically opulent apartment with a bottle of liquor in my hand, trying to find a window big enough to jump out of. Because I was like, no, this isn't working. Like this is everything I've always wanted times a million. And I've never been less happy. That must have been a terrifying moment to have all of that and realize if if this doesn't do it, what will? That's exactly yes, you're a hundred percent right. It's that's so it's not just depression, it's the it's terror and depression. Because you've spent your entire life thinking, like like I said, my early days, I was like, if I sell a thousand copies of a record, I'll be right. super happy. And all of a sudden, at one point, I'm selling 250,000 records a week. And this crazy rock star excess, and it didn't work. And then the question is like, oh my God, this doesn't work. What will work? What will work? And we, to state the obvious, we live in a culture where, and I'm not, I don't think, I'm not looking for sympathy or th thinking the other people in that situation are necessarily deserving of much sympathy, but like, it's why. Elon Musk bought Twitter. It's why the 70-year-old hedge fund guy gets married to a 20-year-old or like why they get new planes, why they move to the five-bedroom apartment on Park Avenue and not the three-bedroom apartment. The idea that like, oh, this isn't working, so let me do more and different. The cult of more. Yeah. The cult of more. And, and I think so many of us in capitalist uh, societies, especially Western uh, societies, um, it it's you know we talk about cults and we never really think of that as the cult how many rock stars need to kill themselves before we say uh, you know if, at least the general population says what's what's wrong here mm -hmm. what what was missing from their and, lives and i'm sure it's not the same for each and every one of them but anybody who's bottomed out on drugs and alcohol is not surprised when a rock star kills themselves at least i'm not yeah. Well, to your point, it's that, you know, you, you spend all this time climbing the mountain and then you, you're like, okay, boy, when I get to the top of the mountain, I'm going to be the happiest person in the world. Mm. Like nothing will make me happier than being at the top of the mountain. And you get to the top of the mountain, you're like, oh, wow, this isn't so great. And then the, but the question is, what else do I do? Like I've spent decades trying to get to the top of the mountain. Now what? And again, I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm not no, it saying come across for as me. You are. I'm no. just saying it is a very claustrophobic place. Um, and you start looking around like you're like, oh, well, maybe I'm just doing this wrong. Like maybe I need to get hair extensions. Maybe I need to <laughs> start doing Pilates. Maybe I need to become a this, that or the other type, you know, like a, who knows, whatever. And then the again, going back to this idea of the power of adversity 
is thank God I bottomed out as an alcoholic mm -hmm. because that forced me to do an inventory and to say like, okay, guess what? Like pursuing fame, pursuing external validation, pursuing all these things, it didn't work. And to, and just one thing I'll say is yeah, yeah. because this is, I've spent years thinking about what is sobriety? And I would say, and I'm happy to be proven wrong or to say that there's clearly more to it, but from my perspective, sobriety is one and only one thing. It's the willingness to finally look at evidence. And that applies to alcohol, drugs, spending, sex, relationships, money, what have you. Mm -hmm. It's because before getting sober, before doing the work, I'm just going to keep the focus on myself. But before doing that, I was engaged in magical realism, you know, thinking, oh, maybe tonight I won't have 20 drinks. Maybe tomorrow morning I won't be hungover. Maybe going to this depressing party won't make me depressed. Maybe living on a tour bus will suddenly be healthy. Maybe all these like examples that were not supported by evidence and sobriety. And I think maybe even like spiritual fitness is the willingness to look at evidence. Talk about the um, self and the equation of uh, finding some type of spiritual path or just talk about self the the what you learned about the obsession with self and how it related to your needing to keep getting loaded yeah what a what an interesting question and i would say okay so again i don't want to focus too much on sobriety because i know a lot of people don't need to get sober. And if you don't right. need to get sober, you never should. Right. Like if you can go out and drink and have fun. God bless you. Yeah, God bless. Have fun. I can't. Um, but the idea of self, when I got sober, when I did the 12 steps, I likened it to imagine you have like a pair of glasses and a mirror. And all my life, my glasses were the wrong prescription and the mirror was covered in crap and doing the work, whether it's the 12 steps, whether it's serious therapy, what have you is getting the right prescription. So you start seeing the world more accurately mm -hmm. and cleaning all the garbage off the mirror. So you start seeing yourself more accurately. Mm -hmm. And part of that, the hardest part is the banality. You know, every human being at their core is kind of mundane I am like, we're, we're all sort of embarrassing. We definitely don't become less embarrassing as we get older. <laughs> and, and that's, I, I liken it again to like the Jungian idea of a shadow self where it's not a dark malevolent shadow self. Right. It's an embarrassing shadow self. It's the adolescent. It's the, the person who screws up singing karaoke. It's mm -hmm. the person who does the awkward wrong thing. And that's all of us. And Look, because regarding self for years, my thought was, as long as I can present myself flawlessly to the world, that's who I will be. You know, as long as I can make the world think I'm attractive and cool and interesting, etc. That's, that's all that matters. Like being perceived the way people perceive me, the way people perceive myself is what mattered. 
and ultimately recognizing like, oh, guess what? Like one, you can't do that. Or some people can. Right. I'm not one of them. It's a tough game to keep up. Yeah, I mean, and, and it doesn't get easier when as you get older. Yeah. Just look, I mean, we live, we're in Los Angeles. It's like clearly like you could just like shake a stick and hit 50 people who are desperately trying to remind the world that they're younger and more relevant mm-hmm. and prettier and more successful than they actually are. So it's that inhabiting yourself for all of the awkward aspects of the self and, and, and learning to... You don't have to love them, but accepting that they're there and making a degree of peace with them. Talk about uh, sharing the, quote, ugly side of yourself with people in your support groups or your your network of support. Oh, yeah. I, I, I do everything in my power still to avoid that. <laughs> like, I talk a big game, but like basically... I still don't really want anyone to see the uncomfortable stuff. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm happy to write songs about it. I'm happy to make movies about it, write books about it. I still don't want to share it with another person. Share some with us. Share some things that... that, that Oh, wait, sorry, the computer, something's wrong with it. (laughs) (laughs) Share some, some things that are hard to say out loud about yourself, whether they're actions or thoughts or feelings. Well, here's... Okay, here's the thing. I would love to do that, but I'm almost going to throw myself under the bus here and say, like, if I do that, it's it's going to be a little bit performative. Meaning I, you know, will say the thing, uh, almost like occupy a space that, like, say the things that I wouldn't have wanted to say 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, guess what? I'm bald and I'm small and I'm not that attractive and not that glamorous like right. those are the easy things it's the 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 more closely held guarded vulnerable things that I don't know if I can actually say is it that you're afraid they're going to be performative or you just don't want to say them oh all of the above yeah, <laughs> yeah. um and now of course my inner guardian is probably saying like oh no we're going to like you're going to become aphasic if you even try and touch on those things. Let's bring Lindsay in. <laughs> you guys do now a that po- Moby's almost aphasic. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, can I ask a huge favor? Mm-hmm. Um, can I leave? It, that, and it's, it's convenient, but I also, I have to go pee real bad. Go pee. Okay. Do you want to pause it? I'm going to, unless you guys want to talk. Uh, I don't mind. Yeah, and I don't mind... Uh, yeah, let's talk to Lindsay while you uh, okay. while you go pee. I'll be right back. Okay. I'll tell all my guesses about what you're most vulnerable. Oh, stop, stop. I'm <laughs> <laughs> right, Bagel? Uh, so, Lindsay, you started, uh, you started a, a, a podcast with Moby called Moby Pod, and you guys have been uh, doing episodes since January of yeah. this year of 2023. Yeah, well, that's when we started releasing them. It's re- the journey. So, so we're always trying to figure out new ways to kind of f- do a- animal activism. Mm-hmm. And, but also, I have a strongly held belief that animals are safest around humans that are healed and safe. And so for a while, I, I have... I believe that creativity 
can help people to evolve and heal and just be better in general, mm-hmm. no matter what they're doing. So Moby and I had actually done a couple of test podcasts and eventually we were like, you know what, let's open it up so that, you know, Moby can talk about anything and we can bring on whoever we want to talk mm-hmm. about whatever we want. Um, and, you know, we can be silly and we can be serious and we're not, it's fully open. And, and it's so empowering podcasting. Uh, I think a lot of people, before they begin doing it, um, I had friends tell me before I started podcasting, you will be surprised at how empowering it sounds like, yeah, yeah, right, blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, oh, By wow. the way, I'm back from peeing. Just after How I was it? How did it, it go? Well, okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> was it your pee or someone else's pee? Both. It was, so, so Lindsay, you might not know this. Um, sometimes Bagel and I go out into the yard and we pee together. Okay, I did not know that. <laughs> I think um, any, that is news a man, to me. Dog owner with privacy in their backyard—that is the case. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 just a sort of bonding thing that we do together. Does she know what you're doing? Yeah. Do you, she has awareness of? Yeah, she'll, she'll like stand like twenty feet away and she'll look at me, and we'll both sort of pee in the backyard together. <laughs> it's so cute. I'm tearing up right now. Yeah. Like I, I, I'm really impressed. That's so, really bonding. It started one time I was bagel sitting because you had abandoned her. and For like a dentist appointment or something yeah. horrible like that. And she was in the backyard walking around and wasn't peeing. And I just thought like maybe what if I get her, let her know it's okay. And so I, so it's some, it started then. And, uh, <laughs> when she was a little puppy. A little more of a puppy. Yeah. yeah. So, so every now and then we do it. We, we just have a little backyard pee together. Th- that is so yeah. cute. I'm not even, it's not even creepy. (laughs) And I mean that. (laughs) So one of the things I was sharing with these guys before we started recording is that we do this thing sometimes on the podcast called Fears and Loves, where we go around and we, and we share fears uh, with each other. And then we will go into the love. Um, And Um, also just FYI, while I was out in the yard peeing with Bagel, I was trying to think of like, what are these hidden things that I'd be so uncomfortable sharing and it's possible that there are some that are very buried, but there's also another possibility is that – and I think – because you've been sober for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Bagel, come here. What are you She's eating paper. Uh, Bagel, no, you don't want to eat pa- – I know you want to eat paper, but you don't really want to eat paper. <laughs> um, is sometimes – like I think pre-sobriety – there were so many things I was ashamed of, you know, because one of the most powerful things about getting sober is sharing like your fourth step, either with the sponsor, with yourself or with a room full of people, like sharing the stuff you don't want to share. And I realized all of that, I've shared it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I almost feel like my fear of sharing is it's based on a prior time. Because all that stuff, like, like I'm actually not that ashamed of it anymore. Right. So, for instance, what are some of the things you're not ashamed of anymore? And I, and I don't mean physically. Yeah. Um, I, I mean kind of internally, soul based. Like, like some of the things that I was ashamed of then was like even just admitting to the dark night of the soul, admitting like the number of times I had, you know, like tried to kill myself right. when I was bottoming out as an alcoholic. Like I couldn't admit that to people. The number of times I had c- cried myself to sleep despairing, like 
and I'm sure there are still some that are that are kind of hidden or buried, but a mm-hmm. lot of that stuff it came out in the fourth step, but I still sort of am having this almost knee-jerk response of, oh, I can't share certain things, but I was like, oh, but I already did. Right. You know, and now I've shared them in books and movies and mm-hmm. all sorts of things. So that was just a, a quasi-realization I had when Bagel and I were peeing in the backyard. Peeing will do that, especially when you're doing it with a, <laughs> with a dog. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll share one, and I don't know, maybe this will loosen things up. A fear. Lindsay, I'd also like to hear you, if you're comfortable sharing some things that are hard to, to say that you've experienced or that you feel about yourself or, mm. the, or the world. But um, towards, towards the uh, end of my drinking, I had... Uh, one of the things that I would do when I would go out of town is I would be unfaithful to my wife. And there was one in particular where I was like, I'm just going to have two beers. I'm going to be home by nine o'clock. I got to get up and do radio. Of course, I I, I stayed until last call uh, and found myself uh, hitting on a woman that I was not even physically attracted to. And she looked at my hand and, and saw my ring and she said, you're married. And in, in that moment, I thought this woman cares more about my marriage than I do. And yet the loneliness was so profound that I couldn't say, you know what, you're right. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm going to go back to my hotel. And, and when, when she said that to me, I said, please don't leave. I'm so lonely. And it's a phrase that I try to never forget if I ever entertain the thought of mm-hmm. getting loaded again is it was the loneliness you know, I didn't have DUIs. I didn't drink during the day, but I don't ever want to go back. And hearing the words come out of your mouth, telling a complete stranger, "I'm so lonely. Please don't leave." Uh, but I think it's important to to never forget that that is where I will go, and it's mm-hmm. it's embarrassing. It's it's. Um, I know that's kind of a big one to, to, to throw out and go, okay, what, what are yours? But that's um, very human, though. Yeah, I think that we're all a little bit, if we, like, we're all one step away from heart, like, breaking loneliness. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of work. I think for me personally, I know this is not necessarily the case for you because you really enjoy being alone, but I, it's something I battle too, is, is that kind of loneliness Mm -hmm. and fear of abandonment and all of that stuff. It's very, very active for me. I have to work very hard to stay out of that kind of, out of that headspace. I, I just, for the first time three years ago, moved into an apartment by myself. I never lived alone before. And I was so scared. I was like, this is it. This might be the time that the loneliness breaks me. Luckily I had bagel, but I was, I was really, really scared. I was like, I I truly don't know how this is. It felt so brave in the moment. I know it doesn't seem very brave because it's like, whatever, it's a nice thing to have like a space that's all yours. But I was terrified. Because I know that's a thing. That's a place I can fall into. And what were the specific fears around being being by yourself? Was it a, a general fear of the loneliness increasing or was it something more specific? I think in my upbringing, loneliness or isolation were all a sign 
that things had gone terribly wrong, that you had failed. For instance. For instance, not being able to find a partner, to find a close friend that would be there with you in those, you know what I mean? Like that, 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 uh, uh, individualism was failure as far as my upbringing had told me. Right. Right. And I know that that is wrong, but it, and I, it took me a long time to figure out what that fear was or that like in, in my eyes, uh, being alone was failure and death. Mm -hmm. It's not. But I had created that narrative in my own mind, and it wasn't until I actually had to be by myself and live alone during a pandemic that I got to actually face this stuff for the first time and realize where all of these kind of distorted, catastrophic thoughts Mm -hmm. were coming from, you know? Were there any um, beautiful moments that surprised you about the um, solitary yeah, I mean, I got to figure out what I, what I, not only what I like, but what I'm like, <laughs> like things that, that I enjoy of having a routine in the morning that is all mine or feeling responsible for my own space for the first time ever, um, of the joy of creating a room or creating an event that's just for me of cooking for myself of waking up and lighting some incense with all the windows open (laughs) (laughs) um and having a matcha and having this like moment in a space that is mine that i created for myself it was a, became these little celebrations every morning where I got to the point where at about at like dinner time, I would be like, Ooh, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to have my thing. And it made me so, it makes me, I mean, it still does to this day, make me so happy and so excited. I love it. Yeah. It's a nice I thing. Love it. All right. Let's do some fears. Who wants to start? <laughs> Crickets. Crickets. Um, I'll start with an easy one. Because okay. we were kind of talking about this before, yes. and I wonder if anyone, any of your listeners can I'm relate. I'm sure there's someone, no matter what it is. Um, since I was very little, I have a very real physical response, fear to velvet and velour. And I don't know where it came from. I don't remember anything traumatic happening. But mm-hmm. even like certain kinds of car seats, the the tops of certain kind, like there's a material, a, a texture. That, yes, the roof of cars. Mm-hmm. Um, I find to be so upsetting. It 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 uh, it triggers a stress like survival response in me. I'll start sweating. I can, I lose control of my hands. It's so intense and i don't know where it comes from but it's a fear it's a thing (laughs) it's bizarre so um for this part of your podcast do we like start light and go heavy or do we just go whatever you want okay i only have i mean i have a couple basic normal people fears of like being buried alive, being in prison, mm-hmm. murder hornets. Uh, but my only, I only really, ha- I think I only have one fear. And that is not doing enough while I'm alive to help animals. I mean, of course, I'm afraid of climate change. I'm af- right, right. afraid yeah. of all sorts of, but the only, the only thing 
like I don't fear being unhappy. I don't fear being alone. I don't fear being maligned. I don't fear being ridiculed. I don't fear being forgotten. I fear that one and only one thing is not doing enough to help animals. That's a pretty heavy one. That's it. And, but apart and, from that, like I'm okay with everything else. But it, it, It's so amazing to hear that coming from you because if we were to look at a curve of humanity caring for animals and working on their behalf, you would be uh, at the top of that. Uh, which even if that's even if there's part of that what you said is true it's still not enough like it's you know i know that there's more i can do i just don't quite know what that is yet and so that's i don't even know if that's a it's a fear and it's an existential dread like mm -hmm. because i look at you know the the 1 trillion innocent animals killed by and for humans every year and i just have to wonder like what can I do to stop that? What can I do? You know, and that's, that's it. That's the only, you know, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, except for being like buried alive in a room full of murder hornets. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, that's, that's my one and only real fear. Well, I'll share one. I'm afraid that I'm never going to be able to go. Uh, not that I won't be able to, because I am able to that I will choose not to go fully uh, vegetarian. And, and, and I'm ashamed to be saying this in, in front of you, but it's something that I've, I've been struggling with lately and I've been weaning myself, but then I, I always backslide and I tell myself lies. I say, um, but you're going you're gonna to beco become so bored. And your restaurant, Little Pine, was like a revelation to me of how delicious vegan food could be. So I intellectually know you can still please yourself, your palate, by doing this. But there is a selfishness in, in, inside of me that I feel shame about that I haven't fully done it yet or that I never will. And... And then I'm I'm a hypocrite because I love dogs. I you know I, but I I well can't extend that love to animals that I contribute to their suffering. I mean, we all contribute to the suffering of others. You know, like I mean, I'm a committed vegan animal rights activist, but I still like if I walk around, I probably accidentally step on some insects. Uh, you know, if I'm driving to the supermarket, there's a chance I might kill an animal or other, you know, like mm. being alive involves hurting other things. Are you trying to make me feel better? Uh, but <laughs> Are also, you being I'm, codependent right I, now? <laughs> I'm also reminded of, you know, our good old 12-step idea of like progress, not perfection. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we do the best we can. Um, and if beating yourself up helps you to do better, then by all means, beat yourself up. But I don't know about you, but for me, like I sometimes beat myself up for no good end. It's just like mm -hmm. the, the habit of beating myself up. Yeah. Every little bit helps. It's hard. You guys are nice. Celebrate the wins and do better on the losses tomorrow, mm -hmm. you know? Give me another fear, Lindsay. 
Oh, I have a pretty deep and overwhelming uh, fear of abandonment that makes me insane and do toxic We're stuff. We're going to have to turn the video towards you. <laughs> <laughs> I, wanna, I want full drama. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Moby knows about it pretty well, I would say. but um, I don't know if I do. I mean, I mean to on, a level. The only thing I will say, because I don't have too many close friends, you being one of two uh or three is i okay and i'm not trying to anyway take away from your experience but i just i've known people who are borderline and i've known people with crippling abandonment issues Mm -hmm. i i think i would certainly not put you in either one of those categories i'd say that you have maybe some unhealthy relationship attachment issues but i don't know like i'm not I'm not trying to take away from your pathology, but at the same time, <laughs> I, I've just not, uh, you, you wouldn't fall in the category of people I've known who are actually like borderline personality, like. No, no, I don't think that I'm borderline, but I do have attachment issues that keep me in places, relationships, friendships. Uh, whatever, even like, you know, habitual thought patterns that I become Mm -hmm. attached to, because I think that they will help for whatever reason. I don't know if that's an attachment issue or just a habitual thinking problem. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a a fear, fear of abandonment. What do you feel in your body when you uh, feel abandoned? Like a, is, is it a feeling of panic? Does your stomach drop? Does your the oh, blood drain from your mm-hmm. face? Do you it's feel full shame? Panic. It's full yeah. panic. Like uh like can't breathe, panic attack level. Um and it can even be something as small as, you know, my boyfriend says something that I perceive as a judgment that he's made about me that I think will become a deal breaker in the relationship. So your and he'll trip. leave me. Right. And I am it's a it's a sweating, can't breathe panic attack. And just it, to be clear, look, we're we're friends and coworkers. We're, when, so, so when she says her boyfriend, she's not talking about me. Just, just the <laughs> listeners might not know that. So. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and is there an element of it where you uh, feel ashamed either of something you've done or who you are as a person? Oh yeah, sure. I've got a lot of, I mean, and this is all, it's like, you know, I have versions of confidence that I think are really great, but also I have a lot of shame. I was raised Roman Catholic. It's ingrained in us. Um, And also by a woman in the South and, you know, who grew up at a certain time when women were just a little bit less and i think that part of that is building in a little bit of shame around everything you need to be the good girl get along make everybody happy yeah yeah don't be a quote-unquote bitch sure yeah i think that's a part of it and so a lot of it just it creates a lot of a lot of shame around all of the things and that i made decisions to leave that world to leave that Mm-hmm. lifestyle and but and yet i still have thought patterns of that upbringing that i yeah. battle you know kick off the loves for us give us a love Ooh. the more detailed and personal the better if you the can loves well it's hard not to say bagel first mm-hmm. because i do believe that this dog has magical powers mm-hmm. and by that i mean that she has given me comfort 
I mean, you know, you love your dog. Um, when I didn't even realize how much I needed it. And it was kind of like she answered this. She fell into this empty space that I didn't know mm-hmm. was empty. But also she's just a real good dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and keeps me company and is fun and funny. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel very lucky that I found her. Uh, I love... The kind of awful, mildewy smell of a vacation cottage that smells like vacation and the memory of my dad, the only time he would wake up uh, and cook breakfast would be when we were on vacation and the combination of the smell of breakfast cooking and Mm. feeling like, oh, he really cares about us. Mm. Wow. So sort of like that slightly like damp like mildewy mm-hmm. old fabric yeah. sleeping bag not mm-hmm. a not a great smell but emotions attached to us mm-hmm. and they yes. say that our sense of smell is the the sense that has the most emotion attached mm-hmm. to it that's real yeah you guys richard have, you you guys have had good ones uh you're allowed to say bagel um no you already said i'm bagel. gonna nix that uh, <laughs> so mine is Okay, is I mean I can think of a trillion things that I love, but ultimately it's and it's going to sound. If you let me explain, hopefully it won't sound quite so vague. Is nature, and when I say nature, give us yeah, give us some specific. When I say nature, I mean every single thing in the universe that we can just barely perceive or not perceive. Meaning the workings of an individual cell. Like if there was one living cell in the entire universe, it would be the single most miraculous thing that's ever existed. You know, think about a cell. I'm reading a book on all the things within a cell, the organelles, you know, the mitochondria, the nucleus, the et cetera, et cetera. It's perfect, and it's more complicated than anything humans have ever invented. One little cell, and there are a trillion to the trillionth to the trillionth power number of cells on this planet. And each one is an unspeakable miracle. And there are times when just thinking about the complexity of it, it just it makes my brain feel like it turns into vapor like Mm because it's just so complicated and so unknowable um and that and the extension of that you know the fact that like we're sitting here and i know that we're talking so it's an auditory medium but like i'm looking out a window and i'm looking at all my trees and things and like the systems in place there Mm -hmm. you know all these diversified cells and guess what happens when they quote unquote die, they become soil. They become, you know, mm-hmm. a form of communication for fungi. They become a way to feed the trees that gave birth to them. Mm-hmm. It's the systemic aspect of it. The complexity is that is my love above all else. It's also my religion. You know, mm-hmm. it's my, and I don't understand the the idea that, there is antipathy between science and religion. Yeah, I don't either. Because science points, if whatever the divine might be, science 
is the extension of that and and it points to it like i don't there there's there's no way divinity could be separate from nature could be separate from science could be separate from the quantum realm could be separate from cells could be you know like so that is you know nature is from my perspective it's everything worthy of mm-hmm. study and and the the belief that spirituality happens on a cellular level you know what what we experience um is also happening in our body it is happening with the ions around us it it is quantitative uh, and i don't necessarily mean worship although i suppose you could include that but i mean being kind to a person our chemistry changes mm-hmm. when we humble ourselves be of service apologize mm-hmm. use our turn signal return the shopping cart all of those things i i believe affect our electrical charge and mm-hmm. that to me is is science um, it reminds me of a funny experience i had decades ago i had gone to a store in stamford connecticut to buy a pair of headphones and this was before the world of credit cards probably like back in 1910 or something and i bought my headphones and the clerk gave me too much money as my change like he was supposed to give me like five dollars and said he gave me twenty dollars and i was so excited because i was living in my abandoned factory i was making two thousand dollars a year and i was like twenty dollars that's two weeks of food and i had just been given to this by the clerk and as i was leaving the store um i thought i was like oh you know what i feel guilty because he's gonna whoever like they're gonna get in trouble like i've done retail like they're probably gonna take this out of that person's pay they're probably economically in the same place I am. And I got about 100 feet away. And I was like, you know what? I have to go back and, and tell them about their mistake and give them back their money. And I turned around and right in front of me was, and it's the first time I'd ever seen this truck. It was a guaranteed overnight delivery truck. And if you've ever seen them, it all it says on the side of the truck is God. And I thought it was so interesting when I had this moment of grace of like, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's a big deal, but like turning around to to do the right thing. Yeah. There was this huge literal sign in front of me that said God. I love it. Um, and so I, it makes me think a little bit in a non-denominational way of like in the New Testament when Jesus said like, when two or three are gathered in my name, I'll be there. And it's the idea that not... And maybe it's not literal. Maybe it's the idea that our, as you said, our kindness, our forgiveness, our humility, our decency, our honesty is a way of creating the divine, of creating the divine spirit. I'm going to go super fucking shallow after that one. <laughs> I love, um, during the Led Zeppelin song, um, The Ocean, there's a moment where they pause between, I think it's the bridge and the, the main riff where it's silent for a second. And then you, if you're listening with headphones, you can hear Robert Plant take a breath in for this, you know, mm-hmm. the, the main riff to come back in. And I love when, when silence is utilized in a perfect mm. way in, in music. And that to me is, is a great one. Lindsay? Um, By the way, someone, sent, one... someone just sent me a pie chart of Robert Plant's lyrical subject matter 
And it was basically this a pie chart. Half of it, hobbits. Half of it, butt sex. And a tiny, tiny little piece that says citrus fruits. That's fantastic. I was like, yeah, that's, that's about it. <laughs> Give um, us a love. I, I'm I'm trying to think of how to put this best, but it's something that just thrills me that I love is f- new information that challenges my old way of thinking in a way that kind of ends the old way of thinking and puts me in a new perspective. Oh, that's a great one. Like, and this may sound trite and ridiculous, but it opened my eyes to certain decisions I've been making and how I can improve for the rest of my life for all of my friends, family, dogs, Um, which is I recently found out that most of my clothes are poisonous. And now I get to, as I move forward in my life, buy clothing items that aren't poisonous and that feels good that does feel good it's nice because apparently like leggings sports bras certain Mm -hmm. socks are all made with that kind of with a kind of plastic that can get into your skin and basically it's disrupting your endocrine system do not tell lululemon what we talked about oh yeah they're a big part of it but now i can buy organic clothes and that makes me feel good new information that changes an old way of thinking. Love it. Uh, boy, I mean, so many things. I was like, do I go with 30 Rock? I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm re-watching 30 Rock for the 12th time and just reminded it's the greatest thing that's ever been on television. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to, and this is sort of an extension of my earlier one of nature, but is, um, oh boy, this is why I don't get invited to parties, is nutrition. <laughs> like my... Because, you know, I've been a vegan now for 30, let me think, 36 years. And for most of that time, I was a junk food vegan. You know, just ate anything vegan that was put in front of me that was delicious and occasionally healthy. But over the past few years, I've become a very healthy vegan. And part of it is it feels sacramental to me. You know, like, because I, so I study nutrition obsessively and the fact that you can eat food that is delicious that is also miraculously health-giving like it's it's some of the some of the nutrients in plant-based foods are the only way to describe them is miraculous and you can't extract them like you can't make antioxidant pills you can make fiber pills but you could a lot of the things that make plant food so miraculous you can't turn it into a chemical. It's right. the it's the compounds. And so I spend way too much time reading about the nutritional properties of walnuts or <laughs> blackberries. And anyone listening is like, what is he talking about? And I'm like, but just if you do the research and you start deconstructing, deconstruct a red grape and it's the most miraculous thing on the planet. I love seeing someone who has gone super, super dark and criminal in their life bring their walls down and cry in a support group meeting and talk about even when they were in prison and they were stabbing people or doing what they had to do to survive, um, that they felt like a scared little kid. Mm. 
and that they're tired of living the way they're living. And having a front row seat when when somebody has a shift in their consciousness and opening their soul for what might even be the first time in their life, uh, to me, is like one of the greatest things about being alive mm. is when you see somebody's walls come down. I guess that's well, what I'm saying. Have you seen, I'm sorry, I was just looking at my phone to remind myself of the name of this movie called The Work. Mm-mm. Oh, it's a good one. <laughs> it's what you just described times a million. It's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. It's inmates at Folsom Prison doing exactly what you just described. It's it's almost too much. I gotta check it out. Yeah, from 2017, and it's that it's a form of therapy that's group therapy among men that's been going on. Like, you know what? I think I saw a clip from it, but I don't know oh if I've seen the the full thing. So, are you recommending that I murder someone to get in there and no, get I'm a close up look? Luckily, that you watched the movie and you, as Lindsay, as well. Like, and also, I feel like, especially at this time where. There's so many questions about the patriarchy, about like who are men? What's the role Mm. of men? What's the toxic legacy of men? Watch this movie and it it will change your perspective forever. Lindsay? Okay. Um, Something I love is it's something I've experienced and I know Moby has experienced it and I'm hearing that you have two in a way is – my own and others ability to um, change our minds and change our lives that we can do that at any moment. Like for instance, when I saw my first video online that showed me what happened inside of slaughterhouses and in that moment being able to recognize that I couldn't accept it and to change my whole life, that feeling of seeing something I can do myself every day and make a change. I love that. Well, that's a great one. Thanks. I love when three dogs are playing (laughs) and one, and this only happened a few times, but you know, one will mount another dog and then the third dog mounts the second dog (laughs) and it's a little conga line. That's happened a few times. Dog humping like, conga line? <laughs> yeah, dog humping conga line. Canine centipede? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, I haven't seen that one in a while. I, I hope we're all lucky enough to witness that yeah, sometime soon. I don't know. I'm okay not seeing that. I'm <laughs> <laughs> not trying to shame that. but I, Because I, also when dogs mount each other, especially when they've been neutered or spayed, mm-hmm. it's not sexual. Like right. I think a lot of people are confused by that. Like it's just like... They get carried away and they're like, this is play, this is power, mm-hmm. this is, we're playing with status. We're, you know, mm-hmm. So when I said I don't want to see it, I was trying to be funny. But like, yeah. I think a lot of people don't understand that like when dogs are mounting each other after they've been spayed and neutered, it's right. just, it's status play. Yeah. You know? um, okay, I thought of something I love that is a true remarkable expression of everything good in our species. When someone is doing something in an uninhibited way that trans that, that normally you would expect them to be inhibited, like for example, dancing. 
Like if you've ever had that experience, like you're out somewhere, you're dancing, everyone's dancing, and someone starts dancing in a way that is so truly uninhibited mm -hmm. and it just spreads and all of a sudden everyone catches it, <laughs> you know? Or if you've ever seen a performance and like all of a sudden one of the performers is suddenly completely unselfconscious and is like captivated by the spirit. Yeah. Those moments of transcendent lack of inhibition. I love it. What a, what a great one to end on. Mm -hmm. uh, your guys' podcast is called Moby Pod. People can find it wherever they listen to podcasts. Anything else you guys would like to uh, plug before we... Uh, Nothing I can think of. Go on here. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, but like... No, I mean, I just... Going back to what you were saying earlier about this, the strange podcast phenomena. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because we've talked to other people who have podcasts. And I would say that there is something, not always, but like there is part of the appeal of having a podcast is it's a sacred space. Because it's where else in our lives do you get to have conversations with people you don't know mm -hmm. that are instantly de deep and meaningful mm -hmm. that involves listening mm -hmm. you know like the example i give is like most of my friends i've never really had a deep conversation with them really not really i mean yeah like we go out to dinner and it's like mm -hmm. it's jokes it's politics complaining gotcha. it's like you know like that crazy elon musk i hear he lost 32 billion dollars like nice. it's it's a lot of like facts and irony and complaining and jokes but it's not listening it's not depth it's not mm -hmm. and I, I think that there's something really i know there are a trillion podcasts in the world but i think it's it's humans have created something kind of special with this institution of the podcast because yeah. it's egalitarian and there's just a, a level of depth and beauty potentially within a podcast i love it thank you guys so much for uh inviting me into your studio and being so open and honest. Appreciate it. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. That was fun. Enjoyed talking to them. Be, be sure to uh, check out their podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's dive into some, some surveys, right? I mean, we could fuck around and kill a bunch of time before we get to that, but what would be the point of that? This is from the Shame and Secrets survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself <laughs> Bad Mom 2.0. I prefer 2.0 than the uh, the Beta Bad Mom. Oh, what a shit show that was. She identifies as straight. She's in her 40s. Uh, says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. 
never been sexually abused, but she's been emotionally abused. My mom would call me names when I was a child and tell me I was worthless. I don't remember how often, but those moments blocked out the good. My mom is who she is. I can't change it, but I limit the relationship with her because I am upset for weeks when anticipating a visit, then recovery from the visits after. Even though she's gotten nicer in the last 10 years, my dread and fear remain. Darkest thoughts. I'm ashamed that I am disappointed in my children. They are good kids, but I always want them to be great. The fact that they are all introverts probably says more about my failures as a parent. I struggle with comparing them with my brother's kids who are excellent athletes and students, whereas my kids are, whereas my kids uh, who have little ambition. Darkest secrets. After I had my first child, I experienced severe postpartum depression. At one point, I had the gun in my hand to die. There are times I wish I had ended my life and am often jealous of those who do. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I rarely have sexual fantasies, but occasionally I will think about sex with random strangers at a bar or in a parking lot. I feel so much shame knowing these thoughts can get me off, but that I don't enjoy sex with my husband. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I tell my dad that I'm sorry for being a shitty daughter. He passed away about a year ago, and the nightmares I have where he is alive and dying in front of me then me falling to my knees begging for forgiveness is devastating. Wow. That is so heavy. What, if anything, do you wish for? I would wish to want to be happy in life and to live. Have you shared these things with others? I share nothing with anyone. I don't want to burden others or make them feel sad. I currently have a professor who is also a mental health clinician who I feel I who is also, I I guess I made that sound like she was a mental health clinician. Um, So he's a professor and a mental health clinician who I feel I could see as a therapist, but if I did, my internship would possibly be denied and my ability to go into the mental health field would end. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel vulnerable and more alone because I know I should talk to someone, but I am too scared. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I think so many of us relate to that place with, that we are either in or we have been where we feel stuck, alone, um, and afraid. Afraid to reveal our, our truth. It's a terrible place to be. And I really, really encourage you to walk through that fear. As one of my friends said, fear is a mile high, a mile wide, and paper thin. This is from the love survey filled out by Lorna, and she writes, I love when my dog, who is deaf, understands and responds to sign language. I love having a nice long phone call with a close friend, and I love forming a connection with someone that lasts. And I want to say to the person from the previous survey, you can have that. In fact, I would say if you really put an effort into opening up and finding your tribe, can almost guarantee that you are going to have that. And it is one of the most soothing and life-affirming feelings that I not only have ever experienced, but that I get to experience on a continuing basis. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself 007. Ooh, I, I got to assume this survey is top secret. They're going to come for me like uh 
The Bourne. Jason Bourne, if I read this out loud, I don't care. I'm going to throw caution to the wind. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. She says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused, but she has been physically and emotionally abused. I grew up with parents who had pretty shitty parents of their own. My mom's father, father was a good man who died young. My parents carry with them generational trauma that they never learned to deal with before they decided to have children and have since made a number of mistakes of their own. I carry with me their trauma, having to parent my parents as the oldest child, having to also somehow parent my grandparents as the oldest grandchild, and also parent my siblings, which is well and truly fucked me up. My dad grew up with a violent father and then decided to use violence against me when he felt he wasn't being heard. My mother used her words to inflict the most amount of damage without realizing the effect it was having on me. Any positive experiences with abusers? I have a civil relationship with my father. He's not a bad person, and he's grown since having my younger sister. He's also recognized the impact his actions have. It feels a little late, though. My mother is too damaged to fully see what her words have done to complicate my own life, but she's also become my closest confident, confidant as I try to make peace with my own mistakes. Darkest Thoughts I often think about what it would be like to have a room full of men and or women have their way with me and for me to be degraded like that. I'm not an overtly sexual person by any means, but this fantasy always makes me feel good. Darkest Secrets I married a man with whom I am not in love with to please my parents as I was tired of living under their roof and feeling like a complete disappointment. I love someone else. I always have. Because of my faith, I couldn't ever be with that person, so I live a lie instead because it seems easier than facing the truth, that I am so miserably unhappy with my life. Sexual fantasies, most powerful to you, as above, being in a room full of men, women who degrade me and use me for their own sexual benefit and have no regard for my own feelings. Sharing that makes me feel disgusting as I consider myself quite strong-willed and would never let anyone treat me like this in reality. And that's what's so common about um, our sexual fantasies is they are often against our, our moral code or what we want in reality. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell the love of my life that I'm sorry I wasn't brave enough to give you the life I always promised you I would, and that I hope in another existence somewhere far away we both get our happy ever after. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to be happy, to truly feel genuinely, blissfully happy, to be able to not feel the burden of my choices weighing me down to want a better life for my family, for the person I love, and for myself too. I owe myself love. Have you shared these things with others? I share parts of myself with the person I love. It's difficult to be so honest and not feel as though you're being stripped naked and left in the street for everyone to stare, which in some ways may be better than having to actually strip back your own feelings and fucked up thoughts. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel relieved to know that I did my best by the people I love, and even if it wasn't enough, it was my version of what I was capable of giving, even if it took more out of me than I could ever give back. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? 
I'd like to tell anyone who struggles with self-worth, deserving love, and fucked up family dynamics that you are absolutely worthy of taking time out for yourself. People will come and go, but you have to live with yourself day in and day out. And the only way to make it any easier to exist is to cut yourself some slack and find anything that makes you happy, even if it's fleeting. It's so worth it. Well said. Well said. Thank you for that survey. Oh, any comments to make the podcast better? I'd love more episodes with surveys and confessions only. I love the guests, but these anonymous episodes are oddly therapeutic in their own way. Uh, I'd be interested to know what the the rest of you think about that, because I never know whether people like the surveys more, the the um, the interviews more. And I suppose it differs with each person. Anyway, this is an email I got, um, uh, and they write, I am Mrs. Yu Ging Yunin, and I have COVID-13, and the doctor said I will not survive it because all vaccines have been given to me, but to no avion. She might mean to no avail, or she means that it has not been given to a bird, which, if this latter is true, um, is really a shame. But I base here in France because I'm married here and I have no child for my late husband and now I'm a widow. I'm sending you a hug because to be married and a widow at the same time has to be incredibly confusing. Um, my reason of communicating you is that I have 19 point two million US dollars here in France and I want you to stand as the beneficiary for the claim now that am about to end my race according to my doctor. I'm not sure what that means when you say end my race. It either means that you are dying of cancer or you're in the Tour de France. And I have to say, by the way, most people prefer watching cancer. But I'm sending you a hug either way. Because um, you got stages to go through. You got the four stages of cancer. You got the 21 stages of the Tour de France. From what I understand, both are grueling. Oh, man. You know, I thought long and hard about your offer and the $19.2 million and so I looked into flights, and the cheapest flight that I could find was $20 million. And I could probably have looked a little bit harder. I just looked at the first one that came up. Um, and so I'd be losing a million dollars to go over there to get the money. So I'm going to need something more on your end. And my first thought was, can you throw in the Eiffel Tower? I'll pay for the shipping. And if you can't do that, because I realize it's a national treasure, could I get the rights to all 600 French movies about a young boy coming of age during World War II? That would mean a lot to me. But I'm really sorry about the either the bike race or the deadly disease. Maybe it's not cancer. Maybe it's just a raging case of French eczema, which as we all know is from butter and cigarettes.
in some other French trope. This is from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Privileged Depressive. And uh, he writes, I'm supposed to feel full of energy and be hungry for life, but lately I just feel a heaviness that I can't shake off. It feels like I'm at an age where I should be make, taking more risks and saying yes to things, traveling, dating, etc. But life right now feels too precious and fragile. I know that this is partly a symptom of my depression and anxiety. I find that if I allow things to be as they are, I have a much easier time and I'm not so hard on myself. But it can be exhausting to live life in the zone between what you're supposed to be doing and what you're actually capable of doing. Some people say that's where growth happens, but lately it's just too much to handle. Oh, fuck, do I relate to that? And I think so many people relating to that, uh, hearing that are like, that is my life, exactly. And that's where like the shame slips in, is in that space between how we're living our day and how we think we should be living our day. And I don't think a day goes by that I don't go, you lazy motherfucker, you are not doing life right. And thank God for support groups. Thank God. Because some, some days, I think we're just incapable of being nice to ourselves and we need someone else to do it for us. How does it make you feel writing your real feelings out? Okay, I've been meaning to fill out a survey for a long time, but today felt like the right time to do so. I'm glad I've finally thrown my hat into the ring. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Oh, absolutely, exclamation point. You, my friend, would love a good support group. And I'm not saying all support groups are good. I've been to some where I'm like, uh, no, thank you. I don't think I'm coming back to this one. But when you find one where it clicks and there's the love and the, the feeling seen and being there to help validate other people, it's just so amazing. This is from a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Tony. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. He says he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Never been the victim, actually, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Uh, he writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And he writes, I'm not sure if I've been sexually abused. Uh, stems from me always being insecure around children, children and animals, always take a liking to me really quick. But in my mind, I always feel that everyone around will think that I'll eventually hurt the children in some way or that I would abuse them sexually. I felt this way as long as I can remember, and it feels really uncomfortable. Of course, nothing has ever happened. I've talked about this with a few close, close friends of mine, and they seemed so surprised, thought it was strange, and that I should stop thinking that way because they would never think that easy, right? And I've had some strange dreams where this feeling comes up and I always wake up in the middle of it, not knowing why I feel that way. And at the same time, I just love the pure joy that children bring. And someday I would love to have children of my own. But what if this feeling doesn't go away? You know, as I was reading this, I was thinking, um, it might be, uh, Something to do with what they call pure O, which is uh, obsessively thinking about something that we are actually morally opposed to. And 
Listen to some, we've done two episodes with Kimberly Quinlan, who is an awesome uh, therapist, and she specializes in dealing with pure O. And you might seek out a counselor who uh, has experience in dealing with uh, obsessive thinking, because my hunch is that that's what's going on. And the more people tell themselves, I shouldn't be thinking these thoughts, that's the gasoline that feeds it. Rather than making friends with the warped animation festival that your brain puts on. Uh, you know, there's times I just step back from the shit that my brain creates and I'm just amused by it. And I don't give any credence to it. It's just, it's just sometimes our brain doing what it does because it gets to. Uh, he says that he's been physically and emotionally abused. I've been strangled by my dad's drug dealer because at 16, not a legal age to drive here in Sweden, I didn't want to drive them in his car to a car meet in a different city. My dad saw this and said nothing. I knew that the man holding his hands around my neck was a convicted felon and was carrying at least a knife. So I eventually caved in and drove them uh, and drove them. Everything went pretty fine, but we never spoke of it. My dad's been dead since 2012. Emotionally abused was probably all of my upbringing. His needs always came before mine for as long as I can remember. I took care of him on his deathbed. Uh, I took care of him on his bad days and good days, but I had to take care of the household uh, probably from eight years of age. Any positive experiences with abusers. The thing is, I really loved my dad too. It was always just me and him for the longest time. Though everything, through everything, he still raised me good and we had a lot of fun together in some twisted way. He made sure I knew what was right and wrong even though he didn't follow that. I knew. This has made me strong. Darkest thoughts that I sometimes don't want to live. Darkest secrets. When I was 18... He was really angry at the world, really harsh against me, really mentally abusive. And I was actively thinking that I should kill him. It would be the only solution. He drank pretty strong cocktails at that time with pain relief medication. I used to make them for him. One time I made an overly strong one for him with double the medication he was used to taking. I hoped that it would kill him, but he just fell asleep for a few hours and then nothing. I'm glad I didn't actually kill him, but that wasn't what I felt then. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Don't know if I've got uh, powerful fantasies, actually. I'm a sexually active guy who loves sex with women, but mostly I fantasize about a massage parlor that end up in a sect, sex act not so spicy. Writing that feels a bit embarrassing. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd want to tell my dad how bad he treated me and that I both hate and love him in some twisted way. I'm angry. Deeply buried inside of me, I think that I'm angry. I never let it out, but it's there. What, if anything, do you wish for? A happy, healthy life and a family in the future. Have you shared these things with others? Some of the things. Sharing it most of the time, it felt so much better. How do you feel after writing these things down? A bit of relief and a bit of shame. I don't know why. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Open up. 
Nothing gets better when you bury it. Well said. Well said. And thank you for for sharing all of that. These are some loves. This is filled out by Susan. She writes, I love it when my large, nervous, dark gray rescue cat rolls onto his back to ask for pets on his soft, surprising cream-colored belly. I love his different colors. And this demonstration of slow one trust is just just completely warms my heart and makes me feel like I must be doing something right, even if he still runs and hides at every odd noise. I do love that. I do love that, man. The trust of a dog. So amazing. And then finally, these are... uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Doom Scroller Extraordinaire. And he writes, Last night after going to my support group and being honest with someone, I barely know about how I'm how I feel closer to ending my life than ever before and hugging hugging it out with them and being shown love and support. I didn't want to leave the house to go to the meeting. I had just gotten out of the psych ward and was in that hellish place of anxiety mixed with depression and severe indecision. The thought of driving anywhere was stressful due to the punishing heat and dickhead drivers and the voice telling me that I'm a loser for having nothing else to do but go to a depressing meeting. It was very loud but in my head, but sitting alone at home seemed hellish, so I forced myself to go. I felt some hope after going, and I'm glad I did. Can I tell you how much I love that one and how textbook that is for what early recovery can feel like? And even late recovery, man, there's some times that the voice in the head is just like, you don't need to go to a meeting. You're good. It's going to be boring. There's going to be traffic. And if I've done anything right in my life, it's to ignore that voice and say, no, I'm going to go. And sometimes the voice will even, uh, the good voice in my head will say, yeah, maybe you don't need a a, a meeting tonight, but what if a meeting needs you? What if there's somebody there who's never heard their story and your story is similar to theirs and it might give them hope or just somebody to say hi and ask them how they're doing at at the, the end of the meeting. And those are the things that can sometimes motivate me to get out of my comfort zone or my chair and do it thank you everybody for filling out the surveys it's such a big part of the podcast and such a a big part of my emotional well-being I hope I see some of you uh, Patreon sponsors this Sunday Um, hope I see some of you at the what do you call it, a performance on Wednesday? I'll put the links to uh, that performance in the show notes, and uh, I'll send the link to that Sunday Zoom meeting to uh, you guys on on Patreon at the $20 and above level. And um, if you're out there and you're feeling stuff, just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.